You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. If you have your copy of God's Word or your ESV scripture journal containing the Gospel of Luke, will you grab that and go with me to Luke chapter 23? Luke chapter 23. And if you do not own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. You'll find stacks of Bibles on those tables in the back of the worship center. You can take one now or on your way out of worship today. That's our gift to you. The text on which today's teaching is based is Luke 23, verses 32 to 46. I'm going to ask you if you're willing and able to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word this morning. And at the end of the reading, I will say, this is the Word of the Lord, and I invite you to respond, thanks be to God. Listen carefully to these words, Luke 23, verses 32 to 46. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull... There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself. Save us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man, Jesus, he has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We are nearing the end of our study of Luke's gospel that we started last Christmas. And for the past few weeks, since Luke chapter 19, we've been looking at key moments in the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry, the week that has become known as Holy Week. Holy Week is the most important week in the life of the most important person who ever lived. And the Friday and Sunday of Holy Week combine to form the best news that the world has ever heard. We come today to the moment of Jesus' death. 
the king who came into the world teaching, healing others, gathering followers, now is abandoned, deserted, rejected, tortured, and murdered. The king dies. Virtually no one would debate this claim. Virtually no one would argue over the question, did Jesus die? All four gospel writers record his death, as do many other ancient Jewish and Roman writers. And Jesus' death has been memorialized by artists throughout the centuries. Here are just a few examples. Some much more imaginative than others. Virtually no one would debate the question, did Jesus die? The cross of Jesus is an established fact of history. The question is, what exactly is happening at this cross? What is happening here? One of the earliest pieces of art we have is a cartoon, a piece of satire from the early, very early Roman Empire. The inscription beneath the cross says, Alexamenos worships God. In the eyes of this unknown artist, Alexamenos is a fool to worship a man who hung on a cross, to bow before him. It's laughable. It's absurd. But worship him, the early Christians did. Worship him, they did. Why? Fleming Rutledge, in her magisterial book called The Crucifixion, she opens the book with this line. Christianity is unique. Christianity is unique. The world's religions have certain traits in common, but until the gospel of Jesus Christ burst upon the Mediterranean world, no one in the history of human imagination had conceived of such a thing as the worship of a crucified man. Think about it. There are so many infamous deaths throughout history. We might think of anyone from Cleopatra to Kennedy, but no one refers to the poisoning. No one refers to the shooting. And yet believers and unbelievers alike refer to the crucifixion. There's something about this death that makes it unique, that sets it apart. This execution, this death continues to have universal reverberations. Why? What is happening here? We'll find the answer in Luke 23. There's much happening in this passage. I want us to focus on four particulars. Understand these four things, and you'll have your answer to the question, what is happening here? The four particulars are, first, the path to the cross. Why is Jesus sentenced to death? Why? Second, the punishment. 
the cross itself. We must understand that. Third, the phenomena at the cross. Luke records these strange, unexplainable signs. What are those all about? And fourth and finally, the penitent prayer at the cross. The words uttered by one of the men crucified alongside Jesus. So the path to the cross, the punishment, the cross itself, the phenomena at the cross, and the penitent prayer. Understand those, and you'll have the answer to the question, what is happening here? First, the path to the cross. Verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, with Jesus. Why is Jesus sentenced to death? Now here we need to think back to what has happened in recent chapters. Last week we looked at Luke 22, the scene where Jesus celebrates his final meal, the last supper with his apostles, which is also the first Lord's Supper, the beginning of the celebration of communion that we'll celebrate later today. And at that meal scene, Jesus says, Behold, the hand of the one who betrays me is here at the table. In this moment, Jesus knows that he's going to be betrayed. Later that night, the same night, Jesus and his disciples make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane nearby, where Jesus, knowing what lies ahead, struggles in prayer as his disciples struggle to stay awake. By this time, it's very late on Thursday evening. Sometime after midnight, so technically early on Friday morning, Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, leads a group of guards to Jesus in the garden. They come to him there because they know that there they can capture him quietly without causing a riot. Judas identifies Jesus by kissing his master on the cheek. Normally, a kiss is an expression of affection, deep love, right? But not this one. This is the kiss of betrayal. It's the kiss of death. The guards capture Jesus. Peter, one of the disciples, he wants to put up a fight. But Jesus says no. Willingly, he goes with the guards. When day breaks on Friday morning, a complex three-phase trial begins. It begins with the religious leaders of the day, the scribes, the chief priests, the religious leaders. They have been jealous of Jesus all along, jealous of his popularity. They've been offended by his ministry, but their questioning reveals that their main problem with Jesus is his purported identity. They ask him, are you the Son of God? And Jesus' affirmation, as you say, his affirmation seals his fate on both theological and political grounds. See, theologically, that constitutes blasphemy, a claim to be divine, and the religious leaders will have none of that. And on political grounds, it means that Jesus is saying he's the king. That means that he's leading a revolution. This is an insurrection. Something must be done. So the Jewish leaders then take Jesus to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. 
These Jewish leaders want him dead, you see, but they lack the authority. They can't execute him, so they take him to Pontius Pilate. And before Pontius Pilate, they present their evidence. They've got a confession in the presence of many witnesses, so they say to Pilate, this man claims to be king. They know they're smart. They know that Pilate won't care anything about the theological issue of blasphemy, so they raise this issue of insurrection. He's setting himself up as a rival Caesar. He must be stopped. This is a charge that will stick, so they think. So they think. But Pilate finds no guilt in Jesus. This is what's so interesting about this trial process. He finds no guilt in Jesus, but the religious leaders persist. And for a moment, Pilate is paralyzed in uncertainty. What am I going to do? But then he finds a way out. He hears in some of the accusations coming from the crowd that Jesus is a Galilean. And that means that Jesus is outside of Pilate's jurisdiction. He needs to be sent to Herod. And so off Jesus goes to Herod. Pilate thinks he's off the hook. But Herod has heard of Jesus. He's heard the stories about Jesus' miracles, and he wants to see one for himself. But Jesus refuses to be Herod's performing monkey. He refuses to do Herod's bidding. And so immediately Herod whisks Jesus right back to Pilate. And there again, Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man. He even goes so far as to say, he has done nothing deserving death. But the religious leaders and the crowds persist. Crucify. Crucify him, they say. And finally, finally they went out. Pilate gives in to the demands. And Jesus is sentenced to death. Now with that backstory in mind, ask yourself a question. Why would Jesus go willingly without a fight? Why would he go willingly with the guards in the garden? Why, even after the Roman governor himself says that Jesus is innocent, why would he go willingly? He's an innocent man. He's been sentenced to death, and he doesn't fight the corrupt system. Why not? Why would Jesus die willingly? And why, oh why, would he die willingly in this way? Second, we must consider the punishment, the cross itself. Verse 33, when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. They take Jesus to the skull. In Latin, Calvaria, from which we get the word Calvary. And there at the skull, the Romans crucify him. The cross has become the central image of Christianity, right? But before Jesus, the cross was not religious. In fact, the cross was emphatically irreligious. It was the most godless object imaginable. 
See, just like the nativity, we have romanticized, tamed the cross. What would it have been like to witness a Roman crucifixion? There is nothing in American present day that comes remotely close. Nothing that comes remotely close. In all of our history in America, the only thing that is somewhat comparable in its horror, in its humiliation, in its state-sanctioned nature, in its decisively public character, is the lynching tree. In fact, there's a book by that very title, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. The word excruciating, from the Latin excruciatus, it means out of the cross. Out of the cross. Fleming Rutledge, again, in that book I mentioned earlier, The Crucifixion, she describes this peculiarly horrible method of execution like this. Crucifixion as a means of execution in the Roman Empire had as its express purpose the elimination of victims from consideration as members of the human race. It cannot be stated too strongly. That was its function. It was meant to indicate to all who might be toying with subversive ideas that crucified persons were not of the same species as either the executioners or the spectators and were therefore not only expendable but also deserving of ritualized extermination. Crucifixion was cleverly designed, we might say diabolically designed, to be an almost theatrical enactment of the sadistic and inhumane impulses that lie within human beings. And according to the Christian gospel, Jesus voluntarily absorbed all of that, drawing it into himself. So again, ask yourself the question, why? Why would Jesus die willingly? And why, oh why, would he die willingly in this way? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all unless, unless there's a deeper purpose to this public execution. There must be something else going on here. What if, Jesus is who he says he is. What if this is God in the flesh, fixed, unjustly fixed to this cross in order to fix everything that is wrong in his creation? What if at this place called the skull, what if at the skull that is the place where sin and death will be conquered. It doesn't make sense unless there's something deeper going on here. This is a strange scene indeed. And it gets even stranger. Third, we need to look at the phenomena, these unexplainable signs that happen 
as Jesus is crucified. Look at them for yourself. Verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So Luke tells us that it's about the sixth hour. That's noon. So from noon until three o'clock on Friday, it's completely dark. Darkness, that's the first sign here. Now, three hours, that's far too long to be an eclipse. And an eclipse can't occur during a full moon, and the full moon marks the celebration of the Passover. So this is a strange darkness, an unexplainable darkness. It must mean something, but what? What does the darkness signify? Is this a sinister darkness? A sign of evil creeping in around the cross? We know Satan has been after Jesus from the very beginning of Luke's gospel. Is this Satan's moment of victory? No, it can't be that. It can't be that because the second sign will reveal that it's God who's in control here. It must be something else. In the other gospels, this darkness around the cross is coupled with something that Jesus says. Jesus cries out, From the cross, in the midst of the darkness, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you rejected me? Why have you judged me? This darkness is a sign of sin and judgment. Sin and judgment. See, Jesus knows exactly what's happening in this moment. He says that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. He says that so that we'll know what's happening here. The darkness is a sign of sin and judgment. Our sin and God's judgment. But in this moment, God's judgment is being poured out on Jesus. The wrath of God, his judicial wrath, His right reaction to sin and evil and all that is wrong with the world. His wrath is being poured out on his own son, on Jesus, as Jesus hangs on the cross. See, forgiveness is not enough. Forgiveness is not enough. There must be justice. We feel this in our own hearts. We feel it especially as we are faced with the atrocities like the one recently, the shooting in Nashville, right? You hear about a school shooting, and in those moments, you say, justice must be done. Forgiveness is not enough. There must also be justice. From the perspective of the Bible, all of creation is broken. All of creation is broken. The way that the Son of God himself dies on this cross, crucifixion itself testifies to the brokenness of this world. The barbarity of crucifixion. It shouts to the heavens, this whole world is broken. And from the heavens, God responds, I will fix it. I will fix it all. My Son, Jesus, the King, He will absorb the punishment due for sin. He will stand in our place. Justice 
is done. Sin is rightly punished. In this moment, the wrath of God, the judgment of God is poured out on Jesus. And that means that you and I can be pardoned. In our place, condemned he stood. In our place, condemned he hung. Because Jesus was punished, you and I can be pardoned. The way to God has been opened. That's the second sign. Not only is there darkness, but look. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Other gospel writers tell us from top to bottom, just to show us who did it. This curtain separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. It represented division, separation between the holy God and sinful humanity. This was an extremely thick curtain, really more like a wall. And in the moment of Jesus' death, that wall is torn apart from top to bottom. This is God acting. The way to God our Creator has now been opened but understand that it did not come easy. This reconciliation between us and God, it comes at a, a cost. For that curtain to be torn apart, Jesus himself had to be torn apart. This is the division that ends all division, but it cost Jesus his life. This is how the path to our Creator is opened for us and as Jesus will go on to say, the path to paradise. But understand that this is not automatic for you. What Jesus has accomplished on the cross, it is not automatically applied to us. And we see that at the end of this passage. Look finally at the penitent prayer. Verse 33 and when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And then in verse 39, we learn one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. Get us out of here, Jesus. But the other, the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man, Jesus, he has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. You remember many weeks ago, many weeks ago, when we looked at the parable of the great Samaritan, as I called it, more commonly known as the Good Samaritan, and it begins with the man traveling through a dangerous area, and bandits get hold of him, and they beat him and they rob him. Those bandits, that's who we're talking about here at the cross. It's criminals who are being crucified next to Jesus. There are two of them. The first one, like so many others who were gathered around that day, they mock, they reject Jesus. But the second one, the second criminal, he shows us how to access all that Jesus is accomplishing for us. He does two things. First, he acknowledges his sin. 
He acknowledges his sin. We are receiving the due reward. This is, this is exactly what I deserve, this cross, the criminal says. He acknowledges his sin. No hiding, no blame shifting, no covering it up. He acknowledges his sin and then he expresses his faith in Jesus. He looks to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, you are the king. I believe you are who you say you are. I believe you have the power to save me. A criminal, a thief. You, Jesus, I look to you. So you see, coming full circle, back to that question we asked at the very beginning, what is happening here? What is happening here at this cross? We have the answer. According to Luke 23, at this cross, Jesus, God in the flesh, is bearing the wrath of God the Father Sin is being punished rightly. And because of that, we can be forgiven. The path to God is opened. The path to paradise is open. Jesus says to this man, today you will be with me in paradise. It's the promise of eternal life. Eternal life for him, eternal life for you. If, like the criminal, you will acknowledge your sin and look with faith to, to Jesus, it really is that simple. It really is that simple. You can do that today. But my guess is, my guess is that maybe there's someone here today or listening online perhaps that's not quite ready. You're not yet convinced. You just don't know if Jesus is who he says he is. So one final thought for you and we'll be done. It's interesting, I think, that we never learn the names of these men who were crucified alongside Jesus. We never learn their names. In fact, there were many thousands of Roman crucifixions before Jesus, and we don't know the name of a single victim. Not one. There were thousands of slaves crucified after the failed rebellion of Spartacus. We don't know any of their names. We, of course, know Spartacus' name, but he wasn't crucified. You see, crucifixion was designed to humiliate, torture, and finally to erase from the memory of humanity this person. The idea was, we don't even want to remember that person. We don't even want to talk about how he died because it was so horrible. It was designed to erase from the memory of humanity the victim who had gone to the cross. So why is it that we know about Jesus? With all the other thousands of crucifixions, we have no idea the names. Why do we know Jesus' name? I'll tell you why. Because of what happened on the third day. Because of what happened after Good Friday. What happened on Easter morning. That's why of all the tens of thousands of crucifixions, that's why we know this one name. The full story has not yet been told. I hope you'll join us next Sunday. Let's pray.
Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of your son. As we reflect this morning on everything that Jesus endured for us, the way he suffered. The judgment, the judicial wrath of the holy God poured out upon him. The punishment for our sin. Oh God, we are so incredibly grateful. We're humbled. There's no way to be proud when we look at the cross. No way. Because it was my sins, our sins, that put Jesus there. So what have I to boast about? Jesus, we reflect on your sacrifice this morning. We thank you for what you endured for us. We thank you that you have opened the way to our Creator, opened the way to paradise, to eternal life. We look to you with faith. We confess our sins, knowing that because we belong to you, all our sins are forgiven past, present, future. We are accepted in God's sight because of you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. We celebrate all that you've done for us today. And for those who are with us who are not yet ready to believe, God, I pray that you would continue working in their hearts, drawing them, convicting and comforting with this wonderful hope of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.